then you're in a locker room, you know, whereas a 21-year-old, you know, you're supposed to be the leader of these grown-ass men, you know, stepping into a huddle with guys that have multiple kids and, you know, investment portfolios and all this stuff. I still feel like I'm a college kid. Uh, so it was pretty crazy, man. And I, I, uh, I do remember distinctly, though, that the uh, it, it became like, uh, that time when you got to be on the field um, during practice and then especially during games, that was the most relaxing time of the whole experience. It was like, okay, well, I know how to do this. You know, I know how to play football. Um, it's faster than the game I played a year ago, but but I kind of know how to do this. This feels comfortable. Um, it was it was far more uncomfortable, <clears throat> far more uncomfortable. Um, you know, off the field, just trying to deal with all of the stuff that was so new uh, um, and, you know, all of the attention. And... Welcome to 90% Mental and the In and Out of the Pocket podcast series with all pro quarterback Jake the Snake Plumber and mental performance coach Grant Parr where the mental game is discussed and discovered by the best quarterbacks and offensive-minded professionals in the business. From overcoming adversity, celebrating mental wins, to actionable mental skills strategies, and more, you'll learn how to mentally navigate in and out of the pocket. Today in the pocket, Jake and Grant sit down with Drew Bledsoe, Super Bowl champion quarterback and owner of Doubleback Winery, to discuss leadership, managing adversity, and the process of transitioning into a professional quarterback. From being the number one overall draft pick in 1993 to a successful entrepreneur, Drew gives us a play-by-play on how he developed his competitive mindset. ReadyList Sports is the future of sports playbooks with its digitized integration of multiple learning styles that helps coaches teach better and players learn more efficiently. Engineered by former professional quarterbacks, ReadyList Sports' revolutionary play drawing tool will save coaches countless hours creating plays. ReadyList Sports also provides the players accessibility to study their playbooks using the ReadyList Sports app for iOS and Android. It's like having the playbook in your pocket. The best part of ReadyList are the auto-generated tests the players take after studying that help ensure retention of your plays. Now let's all huddle up and go visit ReadyListSports.com. Welcome back to the In and Out of the Pocket podcast with Jake Snake Plumber and myself, Grant Parr. We're really excited to bring this show to all of you just to talk about the mental game with quarterbacks, quarterback coaches, OCs, head coaches, the whole gamut. We're really excited to just to get in the, the mind and the mindset and learning the mindset of former and current football players. And today we have an incredible guest that I won't introduce as yet, but Jake, how we doing, man? I'm doing well, Grant. Just uh, enjoying doing this podcast and uh, thinking back to my playing days and reaching out to some awesome people that uh, have had a lot of success on and off the field. And 
that's what we get to do, man. Bring them on the show and, and, and pick their brains a little bit and have some fun. So I'm excited for today's guest, like you said. Well, let's get to it, man. We, uh, man, this our guest today is a Super Bowl champion. Had played years in the league and uh, was one of my favorite quarterbacks growing up watching. I love the way he was composed, big arm, just had a great mind, a uh, great leader, and that is Drew Bledsoe. Drew, how are you doing, man? Hey, great, man. Thanks for having me on, guys. You bet. You bet. Well, let's kick this thing off. You know, you know, you and I have talked in the past, and you know, I've had you on my show as well. And I've always been really just drawn to the way that your composure. You've always been calm throughout your whole career. Kind of like uh, Kawhi Leonard in the NBA. Never too high, never too low. So when you had to deal with mistakes, and I know that you're super competitive, but when you were dealing with um, any kind of mistakes, how did you move on in the moment? Like, What was your process of dealing with mistakes? Well, first of all, I'm not going to let that uh, Kawhi Leonard uh, comparison go without uh, commenting on it. Of us side by side doing anything athletically, um, and uh, <laughs> it's like we're from uh, entirely different planets. Uh, uh, but I appreciate that, man. So thank you. You know, dealing with uh, dealing with mistakes, dealing with adversity is one of the most important things, uh, and most important characteristics of a quarterback. And also life, but but as a quarterback, then it's it's never going to go perfect. Um, you know, there's nobody. You know, and the best guys and the best seasons they've ever had. There's still mistakes that happen, and throws missed, and uh, turnovers, interceptions, all of those kinds of things. They happen, um, especially as a quarterback. If that happens and you let that affect the next play uh, negatively, then you're compounding the the, the mistake. You know, so uh, you know you always try to learn. Um, you know, analyze why you made a particular mistake or why something bad happened, even if it was, you know, sometimes as a quarterback, you know, bad things happen that are out of your control. Uh, you know, guy busts her out or yeah. misses a block or ball gets tipped or, you know, something like that. And so sometimes there's negative things that happen that, that aren't in your control and you got to recognize that too. Uh, and you just try to learn from it and uh, address it and uh, try not to repeat the same mistake again. Well said. You know, I'm, uh, I'm excited for today to have you on the show, Drew, because uh, as you know, man, you hosted me on my trip to Washington State way back. I mean, this is uh, I, back in 1993, I, I, right? <laughs> yeah, dude, I was, I failed. I failed. I, uh, I thought I had you, Jake. I remember that so clearly. I remember coming in and talking to Coach Price, and uh, he goes, well, how'd it go? I was like, oh, he's coming. He's coming here. I think you might even have told him you were coming. And then uh, I, he went down to man. he went down to Tempe and saw all those pretty girls at Arizona State. And next thing you know, you were off to the south. You know, Am I remember uh, right though. Did I'd you like, tell me you were coming? Weren't you? Please tell me. I was me real you. convinced, man. I was. It was hard. I was loving Washington State, close to home. My dad lived in Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, man. It was a real tough. At that moment, I was like, I'm going to be a Cougar. And then Snyder pulled out some tricks on me, man. And, uh, you know, when he said I might have a chance to lead this team to a national title, the missing piece, you know, that was like no other coach said that to me across the country. Right. So that was kind of the, the selling right. point that thought if he feels that highly about me, that's pretty confidence boost. So it was awesome on that recruiting trip, man. We were cruising around in the snow in your little VW, whatever that was. Uh, Scirocco, you were proud of my little GTI. GTI, there you go, man. We were. Me and Thomas Krug were on a trip. You were sliding, power sliding down the hills, man. I was just like, man, I'm rolling with Drew Bledsoe. Because at that moment, you were pretty much 
going to be, you know, top pick in the NFL. So it's pretty huge for me to have the opportunity to, to get to know you. And then through our careers, I mean, you're one of my favorites, always have been a real level-headed, down-to-earth guy. How did you handle the pressures that came with being the first overall pick? I mean, that's huge pressure. What was it in your mental makeup, and how did you kind of get ready for that moment when you got number one pick and now all those expectations? Yeah, you know, um, that rookie season, um, you know, which, I mean, you played in your rookie season also, and, and yeah. you know, that, that jump from college to the pros, I didn't think it was as big a jump as going from high school to college, but, you know, just, you know, playing high school football in Walla Walla and then jumping to college, it was, a, it was probably a bigger uh, jump in speed. But the speed goes way up um, on the field, but the bigger challenge, you know, is just dealing with everything that, that comes with having to grow up all of a sudden. You know, I transplanted, you know, went to high school to Walla Walla and went to uh, college in Pullman, and all of a sudden I'm in Boston, you know, one of the craziest sports towns in the country. Uh, you know, multiple newspapers, lots of, you know, just stuff swirling around, and you got responsibilities. You know, all of a sudden you've got a little money in your pocket, and you got to try to figure out what that means and how to not screw that up. Um, and then you're two man. Then you're in a uh, then you're in a locker room, you know. Whereas a 21 year old, you know, you're supposed to be the leader of these grown ass men. You know, stepping into a huddle with guys that have multiple kids and you know investment portfolios and all this stuff. I still feel like I'm a college kid. Uh, so it was pretty crazy, man. And I I, uh, I do remember distinctly though that the uh, it it became like. Uh, that time when you got to be on the field um, during practice and then especially during games, that was the most relaxing time of the whole experience. It was like, okay, well, I know how to do this. You know, I know how to play football. Um, it's faster than the game I played a year ago, but but I kind of know how to do this. This feels comfortable. Um, it was yeah. it was far more uncomfortable, <clears throat> far more uncomfortable, uh, you know, off the field, just trying to deal with all of the stuff that was so new uh, um, and, you know, all of the attention and, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff was, uh, was, was more difficult to deal with than, than actually playing the game. I found, I don't know. How'd you, how'd you deal with that, Jake, when you came in? Cause you, you came in and I, um, I don't know, but halfway through your rookie year that you did it up on the field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the same kind of thing. I didn't really, I didn't come in as a first pick in the draft, so the pressures were a little less, and it wasn't the expectations were not quite the same. But I was in Tempe, it's right there where I played college ball. So, you know, you're, I was the face right away of that franchise, and that's what really, you know, when it hits you, like you said, you're a young man growing up with these old men like Lomas Brown, who'd been in the league eight nine years, and I'm thinking, oh my God, he knows everything in the world, and I'm just clueless. Um, but, but adapting to the game really. It came, it came with just repetitions and realizing, like, different colored jerseys, faster guys, but it's still football, just like you said. And coping with the outside influences is really the hardest part, you know, when you go out and about in town and you're just more well-known and just – I always just try to stay focused, you know, and, and sur- surround myself with good people and, and count on them to kind of help guide me. If I was being too big-headed or maybe thinking that my, my shit didn't stink a little too often, they would knock me down a little bit, mainly, you know, like my brother's. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gotta have those people in your lives that keep you straight and narrow. And that, that, that I was lucky. So that's kind of how I handled it. But uh, right. it's good right. to hear, you know what I mean? Because you have seemed to me like 
you know, one of the most level-headed guys out there, same down to earth where football did not define you. It was part of what you did and you were damn good at it, but you really enjoyed doing a lot of other things in life. I think that's why you garnered the respect you did and, and were able to, you know, do some amazing things. Um, one of those I'd like to hit on here before I let you have a question, Grant, is, is if you can try to explain to me uh, on a team, like the mindset on a team when, you're, when you've lost some games or getting towards the tail end and when it's like, hey, we got to start winning, guys. What is, what is it that allows a team to flip it and win, you know, like the final six games or the final five of the seven games like you did with the Pats in 94-97? Can you explain that at all and, and what part you played in that? You know, it's it's interesting because it, it it all ties back to culture to me, right? The culture of your team really, um, you know, can define how you're going to deal with every situation. You know, if you've got a strong, positive culture um, where everybody's, you know, pulling the same direction and everybody's on the same page and everybody's going to grind through um, whatever you're doing, you, you know, you're always going to have a chance. Uh, the thing that's, that's, that is, has always struck me about the culture of a team or the culture of a business or the culture of any organization is that it's, it's not equitable. It takes every single person to be um, on board and pull in the same direction uh, in order for a culture to, to, uh, to succeed and be positive. part that's not equitable is that you can have one person that can tear it down. Um, you know, I witnessed that. I'm sure you probably witnessed that at some level um, where you can have you know, one negative uh, person in a team of, you know, almost 60 guys um, that can really um, adversely affect it. But in, in uh, both in 94 and 96, where we had to win a bunch of games to, uh, to get into the playoffs, um, you know, what you really saw was you saw um, a group of guys that just said, you know what, screw it, we're not going to take this anymore. Uh, and we're all going to collectively put our heads down and go to work and do everything – you know, that we can possibly do to try to get this thing going the right direction, you know. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, that I would give Bill Parcells uh, credit for as a coach, I mean, he was certainly no, you know, it was no not that much fun to play for him, but but there was some, there was some method to his madness in a certain way because he was such an asshole to everybody uh, that the team had a, a collective enemy. <laughs> you know, it's like, screw this guy, you know, and... And so, because you know the team had a common enemy in the in the head coach, um, it allowed you know us to come together um, uh, as as a team. Which you know you don't realize some of that stuff at the time. And I, I don't know if he was actually trying to do that or if he was just being a jerk. But um, but it was effective that way, uh, just because we had a we had a we had a, a shared enemy in the head coach, um, and we uh, we were able to uh, to to build good culture partly because of that. You know, Drew, we, you and I have talked a little bit about some of the coaches you played for, and you just brought something up that I remember when a couple of years ago when we were talking about coaches, you brought up Pete Carroll, and you, you brought how the, the energy and the passion and the love that he brought to practice every day. What does a coach like that, how does that affect uh, players' ability to play at the highest level, but especially at the quarterback level? Well, you know, I mean, the quarterback position, as we, uh, we touched on a little bit earlier, where, you know, they're, they're, um, it's a, it's a high-stress position where, uh, you know, you, sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes it looks like you made a mistake when you didn't, and um, you get a lot of the glory, a lot of the blame, um, you know, all of those things that we know well. Um, but, 
you know, for a, a quarterback, knowing that the head guy um, has your back when you're in a situation um, and, and, you, and you've got that support from the head guy, um, it's really liberating. You know, it allows you to play with more freedom. Uh, when you know that uh, you know that the the head guy's not looking over your shoulder, and, you know, and and you know Pete was really supportive that way. Um, you know, really liked playing for Pete. Wish we could have put, wish we could have worked together a lot longer. Um, but with with Pete, you know, so you know all excellent head coaches have a lot of things in common, right? They demand consistency, attention to detail, you know, hard work, you know, punctuality. I mean, you name it. You can go right down the list of. Yeah, the, those things are very consistent, but the way that those things are presented from coach to coach is really different. Um, you know, Pete was always entirely positive. Uh, you see that even even today. Um, but he also, within that, I think people in, in Boston, because he followed Parcells, who was this big, you know, overbearing media personality, because Pete followed um, Parcells, you know, they thought he was soft. Right, because he was positive. They're like, well, you can't be nice and 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 uh, still be competitive, which was absolutely the opposite of of who he was. Uh, but that was the perception that they put out there in the media that was like, well, he's not uh, he's not a jerk like Parcells, so he must be soft. Um, and Pete's the opposite of soft. He's a he's a great coach. He's extremely competitive. Um, and what he's created in, in Seattle uh, is a situation where people really want to be there. They want to be a part of that organization, um, and so they'll compete their butts off just to, to uh, you know, to stay there. Um, and they have to because other people want to come in and take their jobs and be there in Seattle. So he's he's created a really positive thing there. Hey, I, I got to ask you, Drew, because uh, you know I love hearing hearing you talk about the different coaching styles you've been involved with and how you know they all kind of work, but. Sometimes players have to flip it and make the coach the enemy. And then, like you said, working for a guy like Pete Carroll, you, you want to come to work every day. It makes the environment one that, that is uh, encouraging and fun and positive. And um, how, how about this? I want to ask you because I, I remember watching uh, what you went through when you got hit, and uh, you know you nearly you injured, suffered an injury that nearly almost could have killed you on the field. How did you mentally? prepare yourself to get back to the field after something like that, that drastic, was there fear there or how did you process that and get yourself ready to get back in and then still do some amazing things? Yeah. You know, we, uh, uh, yeah, I was in the hospital for, I don't know, five days or something like that with blood being recirculated in my body. I mean, it was, you know, it was a pretty serious deal. Um, but you know, I mean, if you're going to play, you're going to play the game of football, and I think this would be true from anybody that's ever been um, successful at it. I mean, it's a physical game, you know. It's uh, I'm, and I love that part of it. I love the fact that it's a physical game, that it's um, and um, you know, I love everything about the game. But if you're going to be successful at it, um, you know, you got to be able to turn off that that uh, fear reflex that you know that's ingrained into us. Um, you know, genetically, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, if you, uh, it, it doesn't make sense. It's not healthy for your body to put yourself through what we went through. Um, and if you're applying logic to it, there's no way you could do it, you know, even for one day, let alone, you know, come back from an injury. And so, um, you know, for me, it was never even a consideration that I wasn't going to play again. Uh, I was just looking forward to getting back out there and, 
and uh, and getting after it. Um, and uh, that really didn't change just because I had the the, the injury. You know, it was a it was a freak thing. You know, it really was. I mean, it was a really hard hit, but yeah. the injury that uh, where I was bleeding out internally um, was kind of a, a, a you know a really freak kind of injury that doesn't happen. You know, they um, unlucky on that play. Um, you know, Mo Lewis had something to do with my <laughs> being unlucky because he knocked the shit out of me. But uh, but uh, um, but uh, you know, it wasn't an injury that was that I was at risk for uh, after that. So. I don't know. I never really thought about it very much. You know what's crazy about that whole injury? It's it's how you came back from that injury. Now, obviously, things with, with you and Tom Brady, but you came back in the playoffs and literally took the Patriots to the Super Bowl. And and there, there took a lot of um, that mindset, I can only imagine, you had to uh, uh, tap into in the leadership that you had. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So I want to talk a little bit about your leadership style. And there's Two two questions here. Do you think leaders are born or made? And then how has your leadership style that you developed throughout your football career helped you running your company, Double Back Winery? Yeah. Um, well, I think that, that, that your first question, whether leaders are born or made, um, you know, I think there, there's a little bit of both. Um, you know, you, you uh, there are certain people that, that, uh, that are just <clears throat> natural leaders, and we've all been around them and seen them. Um, you know, and all, you know, from grade school all the way through now, you know, there's certain people you just bump into like, yeah, I want to be around that guy. You know, I, I want to see what he's up to. Um, certain people that just have the kind of that, you know, that magnetism. Um, but beyond that, th- th- there are, uh, definitely, um, leadership skills that can be learned and developed. And even if you are a natural leader, um, there are tons of ways to improve and how you, uh, and how you approach things and how you lead people. Um, but I think one of the most important things that, that you have to do in order to be a leader is you have to understand who you are first. You know, if you're an introverted person that's that's not comfortable, you know, uh, standing up and talking in front of a team or a business, um, you have to recognize that first. It uh, doesn't mean you're not going to do it, but you have to recognize that it's going to be difficult for you, and so then you have to pre- prepare for that. You got to think through what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. And, you know, you can't get up and just wing it. Some people can get up and just riff, and they're and they're fine. But if you're not, then you have to really kind of spend some time thinking about what you're going to say and what your message is going to be. And um, and that's you know when I when it came time for me to to actually you know, talk to the team, I did think about quite a bit what I was going to say and how I was going to say it and, and, and what the what the right uh, timing was and, and, and all of those things. I was not a person that was naturally uh, inclined to be really vocal, especially when I was young. You know, I didn't feel like I had the right to talk when I was young. But as I got older, I grew into that role. And, and, uh, and uh, But I did apply a lot of thought to what I was going to say before I got up and talked in front of the team. But then beyond that, you know, there are the obvious, the obvious things. You know, you, uh, you know, you can't, you know, you can't try to and claim to be a leader if you're not putting in the most work. You know, I always made sure that my car was in the parking lot when everybody else got in in the morning, and I made sure that my car was still in the parking lot when everybody else left uh, at the end of the day. You know, even if that meant I was in early reading the newspaper, um, I just made sure that everybody saw my car in the parking lot uh, when they pulled in. You know, so you got to make sure you do those kinds of things, um, and then you just have, you know, you got to be honest and you, with yourself and with your teammates. You know, if somebody's screwing up, you got to be able to, you know, step in and and, uh, and address it respectfully and do things the right way. But you got to be, you got to be able to take action uh, when you recognize there's a need. 
um, which that part was harder for me uh, when I was young because everybody was older than I was, and I didn't feel like I could do that. But as I got older, I could hold guys accountable. You know, and then uh, the cool thing is that that translates into business. You know, leading a bu- leading a business and guiding a business. You know, those you know those same qualities and traits uh, they carry over very directly into uh, running a business. Put together a good team, give them clearly stated goals and missions. Um, you know, give them positive reinforcement, and then um, um, and then hold them accountable. But if you're really doing things right and things are clearly stated, you don't even have to hold them accountable because they. Uh, they feel like if people really know clearly what they're supposed to do and they know that they're going to be held accountable to it, they're not going to miss. Uh, and that's really been the case for us. Uh, but it's been a fun transition, man. Taking those leadership skills and applying them to business is really fun. Yeah, that's cool. I, uh, I like seeing, I mean, we're all, as, as quarterbacks, anybody that played it, and especially at a high level, it's kind of one of those things I've been told by many friends of mine, close, close people, and now I, I believe it and try to manifest it as, we played at the highest level. We were one of 32 in the world starting quarterbacks. We really can put our minds to something and do anything we want. And it takes a lot of people around you, like you said. And I, I like to hear, you know, not only on the team, the teams you played for in the NFL, but with your double back winery, you know, it's putting together the right team, having a good product. My segue into that would be um, the fact that you did have some amazing clutch late in the game, clutch games, you know, two times touchdowns in the last 30 seconds to win games and big moments, even with the broken finger. And like you were, you had skills that were awesome, but your leadership, obviously your team loved you played hard for you, not just your offensive guys, but your defensive guys. So when you look back on your career, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here. You can kind of go with them, but what's one of your proudest moments as a player? And then also what's one of your proudest moments post career and maybe just in your life? Yeah. Oh man, as a as a player, um, you know it's it's funny. So, my uh, our our CEO at the at the at the winery, um, he's a, a rock star winemaker, um, but he's you know he's young. He's he's been running the business for us for a while, but he's only like thirty. Um, and wow. you know when when we have adverse times at the at the business, I'll always tell him like, Hey Josh. Um, when we're old and we're sitting on the porch, we're not going to talk about the games we won 45 to zero. We're going to talk about the games where your back was against the wall and you had to respond and come from behind, um, you know, to, to win a game. So, you know, this adversity, it's a real opportunity. And, and it's kind of cool because now I've gotten to the point as a business um, where I, I think, you know, Jake, you were, you were like this. And I know I was that, man, when it's, it's tied at the end, you got to come back. And it's like, okay, this is my time. You know, I really look forward That's to those up. moments. You know? I mean, it doesn't mean you uh, it doesn't mean you're out there trying to fall behind, you know, <laughs> on purpose. But, but man, I always look forward to those opportunities, and it uh, it translates into business. You know, we had uh, a game in uh, in '94 where we were down 20 to nothing to the uh, to uh, Warren Moon and the Vikings, and uh, they let me go yeah. two minute offense the entire second half. We came back and won and won it in <laughs> overtime, which was uh, which was awfully fun. Um, going back to college, man, we had I had one great battle down at Fresno State with Trent Dilfer. Uh, I think there were four lead changes in like the last three minutes, um, and wow. all touchdowns. You know, it was just back and forth, and so that one was really fun. Um, but you know, got, leading a team and helping a team when when uh, when when things are are uh, not perfect, um, that's what I always took pride in on that on that side of things. 
Um, on the personal side, I, you know, it's, it's, it's still football, but it's different. Um, I, I coached high school football out here in, in uh, Bend, Oregon for, for six years. I got to coach all three of my, three of my sons as they came through. But when my, when my oldest was a senior, um, so Stu was strong safety receiver, uh, John was a junior, he was our quarterback. And then Henry was a freshman, but he got to suit up as the backup quarterback, um, uh, uh, during cool, the playoffs, <laughs> and uh, so I had all three boys uh, uh, on the field. Uh, my brother coaching, <laughs> and then my dad would sit in the stands. And as I was calling plays, he would dial in, and he could. Dad could sit in the stands and listen to the play calls coming in. So we had m- my dad, me, my brother, and my three sons all on the field at the same time, and we won a state championship. Um, you know, with all of us involved in it, so that was that. That wow. would be probably the biggest highlight ever. Just all three sons out on the field won the school's first ever state title, and, and uh, wow. Dad and my bro were involved. That was, that one will always be a highlight. Beautiful, <laughs> I know. I, I I love hearing that, Drew. Man, like coaching high school ball for me when I retired up at Sandpoint, Idaho, small school. It really brought the love of the game back when you know guys were suiting up that had their chin straps buckled all game that were not going to even sniff action, but they were right there by the coach. And just that, that sense of love of the game, man, for high school. And I can see where you fit right in with those kids and what an awesome accomplishment with your whole family, man. What a cool moment. And uh, let's bounce out of the pocket here real quick. I'll start it off. One quick question I'll have, and then I'll follow it up with another is, do you know what your longest run from scrimmage was, Drew? <laughs> now you're just rubbing it in because I, uh, I, you know, I, I think I. I you were think no, I, you were a good. You were good, man. You made you made good moves. You I, made I, positive I, moves. I, I, you I, I, was, I was I was I was I was faster than they thought. I just didn't run yeah. very much. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not really. I'm not really sure. I want to. I want to say there was. I, I probably got close to 20 yards one time. I think. Uh, That's good man. I, I'm uh, yeah. I don't know. I have to go back and look. But um, <laughs> you know, I I, uh, I was a, I was a good uh, I was a good third and fourth and uh, third and one and fourth and one uh, uh, quarterback. <laughs> I get to fall forward. I was falling if I could just fall forward for a yard. Um, but I think I'm maybe you know twenty ish yards maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What was your longest? I, yeah, you had to you had to gone for I- some long ones. No, you know, I don't know. I think 40, maybe 45, but it was like, you know, everybody sucked the man on the right side, and I bounced out behind and got chased out of bounds, you know, but uh, never had to run long. If I ran 40 yards, somebody had to meet me at uh, 20 yards in and hand me some water. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. I think I always wanted to run that 80 yard where you pull away from everybody, but I was limited on my speed. Um, <laughs> that's okay, though. Hey, so you're, you got double back winery. You love wine. We know this. There's a whole like world of wine out there. You know, we talk silky and foxy and lacy and crunchy, <laughs> quaffable. It's an oak monster. Are you a cork dork? Do you talk wine? And if so, when you have a glass of wine, do you drink it to the teeth? <laughs> you know what? I, I, uh, uh, I, I, I really, really like wine. Um, I do think that uh, <laughs> some of the real cork dorks deserve to be made fun of, and, and I fall into that category sometimes. Um, matter of fact, we've talked to, we think that like the, the, like the um, you know, John Cleese and those guys, they need to do a, a parody on, on wine because uh, it's ripe yeah. to be made fun of, you know, like a best in show kind of deal. 
Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are uh, times when I have to, uh, you know, really try to understand and describe um, what's going on in a glass of wine. Um, but probably 99% of the time, we just drink wine. And, and, and my <laughs> wife and I both really like it. And, and uh, we'll try different stuff and try to expand our palates if you will but uh but we just we just drink we just drink a lot of wine and we just really enjoy it so not complete cork dork but every once in a while i'll have to do the annoying deal where you're kind of drinking through your teeth and trying to do that thing and, and uh um my my wife mara she'll look at me and she's like oh, you're so annoying you pretentious <laughs> asshole uh, uh and uh, uh but the rest of the time now we're just drinking wine so this this whole quarantine has had to help because i know that there's been some bottles popped pretty early in my house with the uh, social uh, isolation and kind of lockdown status. So has Double Back seen an uptick with everybody kind of locked down uh, looking for wine? Yeah, we have. We've, um, um, you know, I, I think there are two things happening from just specific to our business. One is people are buying wine, um, continuing to do that, but people are also drinking through the wines in their cellars and, and, uh, um, so, you know, going forward, you know, once everything normalizes, people are going to have to replenish their sellers. So we'll be here to catch them when they're ready for that too. Um, obviously nice. it does hurt though, because we, you know, this is the time of year starting, you know, um, kind of mid April, um, through the rest of the summer where we do events all the time and, um, you know, just have hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, coming through Walla Walla and coming through to see us. And, and, um, um, and so obviously that can't happen. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's harmful, um, specific to, you know, to the Walla Walla Valley though. The thing that, that I'm just I'm nervous about and, and worried about is just whether our, our, uh, hosp- the, the other hospitality is going to be able to survive. You know, the wineries are going to yeah. make it through. We can still sell wine, but the restaurants and hotels and, uh, all of that, you know, and I know it's happening um, everywhere, um, but I just really hope they'll be there when uh, when people start coming back, so people have places to to dine and and, steve, and sleep and and uh, all of that. But uh, but we're making it through. People are drinking a lot of wine, and we can attest uh, to that here at our house as well. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, I, I got I got one uh, out of the pocket question here, and I know I've I've been pretty redundant with this question but i love this question um about dreams like since you played many years in in professional football i can only imagine with all the years behind you you have dreams you have these dreams where maybe you've missed a play through an interception forgot the play have you is there any dreams that have came up or maybe reoccurring dreams that you've had <laughs> yeah uh the the one the one recurring dream that I that I uh, that I've had a number of times and I've never talked to a psychologist to figure out what this actually means but um, I, I've I've dreamt over and over that I show up like mid first quarter of a game like I arrive at the stadium and the game's already started and uh, so I'm trying to figure out what to do so I just but every time I, I just go. I go. Um, I just go put on my uniform and uh, come down the tunnel, like and everybody murmuring, wondering where the hell I was, and then uh, I come down and and uh, go, you know, tap Scott Zolak on the shoulder and uh, shoulder and uh, and jump into the game. But I don't know what the uh, what the deal means where I you know show up halfway through the uh, through the first quarter, but that one comes up quite a bit. So any uh, amateur psychologists out there that want to analyze me, um, I'm open. I'm open ears. 
<laughs> how about you? Uh, how about you, guys? you guys? You guys got you guys got I, recurring dreams? Oh yeah. I have that same one dream, but I but but I'm hearing the crowd and I'm hearing it going on, but I can't find my my left shoe. All I have is a locker full of right shoes, and my left <laughs> shoe or 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 my socks are not right, and I'm like I can't find my shit, and I'm freaking out, and it's like it's crazy. So there's something to be said. I think it's like the pressures coach put on us to be the pinnacle of leadership, and if you're not five minutes early, you're late. That kind of thing. Maybe that's what it is, but. Yeah, I, think I know I have PTSD dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one the one because for me is uh, because I've had my hip replaced twice. I I always go back to a dream where I'm I'm excited to play football again, but I'm playing with my with a metal hip, and so there's oh, a boy. yeah, just like fear in my in my dream. I'm like, am I gonna play good? Am I gonna get hurt? And it's just all of that going in my head, and then I it get to a, gets to a point where I get sick of like all that fear, and I just wake up. But yeah, that comes up a lot. Yeah, it's a high it's a high stress game we play, especially the position. And uh, no doubt, you know we're gonna wrap this up, Drew. It's been an awesome, quick thirty plus, little over thirty minutes talking with you. Uh, like I mentioned, man, from the moment I met you, and then through our our uh, agents and just being around, man, you're a class act. It's really a guy that deserves all the success in the world, and I'm glad you're. Living life to the fullest, drinking lots of wine. Double back is, is going to be ready to come out of this quarantine, uh, ready to roll. And uh, we just appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast, man. We're really thankful. You got it, buddy. Uh, and uh, hopefully this thing wraps up here soon. Love to get together and uh, actually get to uh, sit down and share a glass together. It'd be a lot of fun. I'm going to have to come through Bend, Oregon, man, play a little golf and drink some double back. I'm down. That'd be awesome. There you go. There you go. I'm in. Let's, let's do it. All right. Right on. All right, thanks thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate you having me on. You bet. Hey.